2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. This is what the Word of God has to say. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpa- that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There is no greater leader in the history of our nation, more revered than our first president, George Washington. He is always portrayed regal and, um, and, and grand in most of his, the statues of him and, and depictions of him. But our first president struggled throughout his life with spelling and grammar issues. I can identify with that. And, he, and it's believed by some he may have actually been dyslexic. Our fourth president, James Madison, battled his whole life with epilepsy. Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, struggled with severe, uh, debilitating headaches and bouts of debilitating depression. He also may have had a Marfan syndrome. Our 32nd president, FDR contracted polio at age 39 and that left him physically disabled for the rest of his life. Throughout his uh, political career as governor and then later as president, he worked tirelessly to hide his disability from the public. The Secret Service would shield him when he was getting in and out of his wheelchair. He developed techniques to be able to appear to be walking even as he had to hold on to someone else and the walking was a was a a clumsy sort of uh, adaptation of making braces work and even his standing behind uh, lecterns was accomplished by a feat of upper body strength as he would take hold of the lectern and grab hold and with with great strength so that he could force himself up while he gave a speech. It was really only after his death that the extent of his disabilities were known to, to many. Now, it's natural, it's normal, I guess, to say that leaders want to project an image of power and strength. And so any disability, any limitation, any weakness, a, a leader wants to diminish or hide or make less of. A perceived weakness threatens their ability to command the attention, the loyalty, the support of those who lead. We want our leaders to be strong and, and mighty and, and, and in full uh, command of their mental and physical capacities. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul makes a pretty radical claim. 
He doesn't say here a claim about his strength, his power, his ability, his intelligence, or any other characteristic of worldly admiration. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul claims to be a jar of clay. Now, you may think, well, there must be something special about a jar of clay. Maybe there's something significant about the first century jars that made jars of clay special or particularly strong or something significant. And friends, no, a jar of clay is exactly what you think it is, a cheap regular, disposable, familiar, common jar of clay. Nothing special about a jar of clay. That's the point of this passage. Forgettable, common, disposable jar of clay. His identification with, his, with such humility is not made to, uh, in, in despair, but in glorious hope, recognizing that God's glory is made through uh, such humility. In other words, he's saying there is purpose, there is reason, there's divine will behind this. I'm not special. I'm not significant. I'm not great. I'm just a jar of clay that the glory of Christ may be known, known in me. Now, friends, I want you to hear two things out of this passage this morning. Number one, God's power is demonstrated in our frailty. And secondly, life, the life that comes from Jesus, is demonstrated through death. The great contrasts of this passage. Let's begin with the first. Power, the, the power of God is demonstrated in our frailty. I see that in the very first verse, verse 7, where he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs where? To God not, and not to us. This whole passage is a passage of contrast. So in verse 6, uh, Paul declared that the light of the gospel has shined into uh, his heart to give, and these are his words, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What a glorious word to declare. This certainly could have been a point of pride and an opportunity uh, to, to, to be given over to arrogance. Paul knows the gospel. He knows the hope of eternity. And yet he begins verse 7 with, but. In other words, for all the wonder of verse 6, but. God chose a jar of clay, weak, common, regular, normal, to display his glory so that we all know it's about the power of God, not the power of man. He's contrasting the glorious wonders of verse 6 with the fragile reality of his flesh in verse 7. Friends, the treasure of the glory of God known through the gospel of Jesus is contained in frail human hearts and minds. The divine purpose is to make undeniably clear that the power to save is only through the power of God. Now, the tendency of sinful man is to take credit for the things not of our making. You can find testimonies of this all the way through scripture, and that's still very common in our day as well. Sometimes when God moves in a mighty way in a church, 
There's a temptation for the leaders of the church to take credit for what's happening. Oh, it must be the pastor. It must be the direction, the the wisdom, the, the leadership of the church because of what is happening. When, when, when God brings revival and it breaks out and many are being saved, there's a temptation for, for the church to exalt themselves for what God is doing. Look what we have accomplished. Sometimes when you have the opportunity to share the gospel, and when you share the gospel, the person that you share the gospel with gets saved. Listen, that is a great moment. I hope you have that experience often. Share the gospel, the person you share the gospel with gets saved. There's a temptation to believe that somehow your presentation, your intellect, the way you fashioned the words and presented the gospel to them is what brought them to salvation and and convinced them of the truth. But friends, Paul identifies himself with the jar of clay. Common, basic, regular, disposable. God's purpose in using the, frail, the, using the frailty of flesh to contain the glory of the gospel is to make sure that the testimony is to God, not to man. Jars of clay testify that salvation comes by the power of God, not the power of man. By the work of God, not the work of man. By the will of God, not the will of man. By the purpose of God, not the purpose of man. For the glory of God, not for the glory of man. Because of the truth of God, not because of the intellect of man. Salvation comes not through the work or might of men. Salvation comes through the power of God alone. Oh, dear friends. Paul's saying, listen, whatever you do, don't be impressed with me. Be impressed with what God has filled me with, but not with me. I am just a jar of clay. Jars of clay testify to who God is. He is the one of great power, and it testifies to what God has done. The power of the gospel was most powerfully displayed on the cross of Jesus and at the empty tomb. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, gave himself up on the cross as a sacrifice for your and my sin. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, died and was buried in the tomb as as an offering for you and for me. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, did not remain in that tomb, but three days later rose again, defeating sin and death and and giving hope to the world that there is salvation in him. God has provided for our redemption through Jesus. God has provided for our forgiveness through Jesus. God has provided for our eternal life through Jesus. Those who preach the gospel have absolutely nothing to boast of in themselves. Those who have been saved by Jesus have nothing to boast about in themselves. I was having a conversation this week, and and we talked about there's two realities. There's no one in hell, when, when Jesus comes and judges the world, there'll be no one in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. 
And there'll be no one in heaven who has the right to be there. They'll all be there. Those who are entering into the glory of heaven will be there only by the grace of God. Later in this same letter to the Corinthian church, Paul will say that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He'll say, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. In the letter to the Ephesians, Paul will write, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not uh, your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that, so that no one may boast. Let's be totally honest this morning. There is nothing about a jar of clay that's impressive. This passage and Paul's use of the imagery of a jar of clay is not to draw our attention to the jar of clay. His use of the jar of clay is to say there's really nothing about me that's important. Jars of clay are not significant in any way, but the jars of clay are filled with the power of the living God and bear witness to what God has done and his provision for salvation through Jesus. These jars of clay testify to who God is and they testify to what God has done. He has provided the hope of salvation through Jesus. God's great power His great, wonderful power to save is demonstrated, is testified to through these jars of clay, our own frailty of our flesh. Now, the second thing I want you to see, and that is that life is demonstrated through death. Now, this whole passage is contrasts. So jars of clay displaying the glory of Christ and death demonstrating Life. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's look at the passage. Looking back in your Bibles at verse 8, Paul begins by this list of things, and these are not abstracts. And so Paul, if you don't know anything about the life of Paul, he had known a lot of persecution. He would know a lot of persecution. He would die uh, executed for preaching the gospel. So these are not abstracts. These are realities for his life. And he says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Life is demonstrated through death. A couple of things here. Number one, Paul recognizes that he is sustained by Jesus even in suffering. Now, Paul would know in his life and in his ministry, many difficulties. Some would be inflicted by the hostilities of the wicked world. So Paul would be beaten, he would be jailed, he would be run out of town. But some of the difficulties he knew would actually be inflicted by the the church themselves. And so you you may remember that, that part of what Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church he's dealing with is dealing with those who are accusing him of lying and being dishonest and not being faithful to the gospel. So some of the the difficulties he's experiencing are not from the outside, they're from the, the inside of the church. And even now as he writes to the Corinthians, he is defending himself to those who are trying to discredit his ministry. In the first century and in 2023, 
according to the opinion of the world, the, the good life is a life that is free from the hardships and difficulties of this world. Now, many of you right now have given your whole life, so your attention, your mind, your physical ability to pursuing the ideal of the good life. Now, usually that has something to do with financial prosperity. Have enough money to do whatever those things that you want to do. That has to do with a good life or, 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 or physical health. And so you want to be well and be able to be active and those sort of things or, or freedom from any of life's difficulties. And so um, emotional despair or, 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 or things that might discourage you in any way. And if you listen just a little bit to the, the secular world around us, there's a lot of effort given to, to trying to pursue the good life. But Paul declares that his experience is not filled with financial, um, financial wealth or physical health or freedom from life difficulties. Rather, he says, my life, my ministry has been filled with all kinds of things that most of us spend our lives trying to avoid. He says, he says, I'm afflicted or crushed or pressed. Right in there, first verse eight, he says, we are, we are uh, um, afflicted in every way, but, but not crushed. The word there for crushed is from the verb, which, which refers to being confined to a narrow, tight place, to be pressed down upon. He says, we're we're, we're perplexed. Now, you might think, what does that mean? Does he not know? We might use the word or the phrase at a loss of what to do. Paul says, I'm perplexed. But not given to despair. Verse 9, he says, we're persecuted. That word there means to pursue or to hunt. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down. Or you might say, struck down, but not destroyed or not rejected. According to the judgment of the world, such things would be enough to cause one to quit or to turn away. What if I were to tell you that the rest of your days would be filled with these kind of things? Persecutions and afflictions and being pressed and perplexed. What if I were to tell you that, that, that your, the rest of your days would be filled with those things with no end? Most of you would say, I, I think I'll sign up for something else. The lie of our, our, of our modern context is if that's what your life is filled with, it must not be the blessing of God. It must be something wrong with you or something wrong with your life. According to the judgment of the world, such things would be enough to, to justify you quitting, leaving, abandoning. But to these things, Paul declares he is not crushed. He is not given to despair. He is not forsaken. He's not destroyed. And I don't think he's just putting a hopeful spin on a difficult situation. I think he's speaking just honestly to the church. And he's saying that his sustaining hope is connected to the power that fills his jar of clay. I don't want to put too much on the, 
the analogy too much on the imagery of a jar of clay. You can get in trouble with that. But you do understand that jars of clay are not strong instruments. If you drop them, if you, if you hit them, they will break, they will shatter. So all these things, persecutions and being pressed and perplexed and difficulties, if you were to connect that to hardships or, or difficulties on a, on a cheap, fragile thing of jar of clay, you would simply think, well, those things don't last such abuse. And yet Paul says, I'm not crushed, I'm not given to despair, I'm not forsaken, I'm not destroyed. How could that be? Well, that could be because he's sustained by Jesus in his suffering. Paul's sustaining hope is connected to the power that fills his jar of clay, not the power of his jar of clay. Jesus sustains us in our suffering. When he suffers afflictions, he is sustained by the surpassing power of God that fills him. When he is at a loss of what to do, he is sustained by the surpassing power of God that fills him. When he is persecuted, he is sustained by the surpassing power of God that fills him. When, when he is rejected, he is sustained by the surpassing power of God that, that fills him. Jars of clay cannot endure such, but when filled with the power of the living God, jars of clay endure for the glory of God as a demonstration to the glory of God. Jesus sustains us in our suffering, but he says something else in verses 10 and 11. He says that, we identify with Jesus, he identifies with Jesus in death. Look at what he says, verse 10. He says, always carrying, in other words, continually, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now to understand what he's talking about, you need to understand what Jesus did. Jesus had to die so that you and I could live. The cost of sin is death. And the only one who was, and only one who was sinless could die in the place of sinners. I said earlier that there will not be anybody who goes to hell that does not deserve it. And the reason why that is so is because the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wage or the cost of sin is death. So the judgment of God over sin is death. So if you are a sinner today, then you will pay for your sin with your death. The Bible says that Jesus knew no sin. In other words, he lived a sinless life. Only a sinless person can die for another person. I can't die for you because only my death can atone for my sin. You can't die for me because your death can only atone for your sin. The only one who can die for another is one who does not have sin at all. Everyone who has sinned deserves to die and suffer the wrath of God. But Jesus died that sinners might live. To receive the gift of salvation from Jesus requires that you die to your sin and self. This is what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus speaking to his disciples said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How do you come to salvation? Well, it requires in part dying to sin and self, dying to who you are, to your master of your life, to your lordship of your life, that you might surrender yourself to the lordship of Jesus. How can Paul speak of suffering with such hope? How can he talk about being perplexed and persecuted and and pressed with such hope? He does so because he has died to himself for the sake of Christ. Listen to this. What Paul is saying is, listen, I've died to all the things of this world. I've died to the hope of of, of trying to sustain a, a body of health. I've died to the hope of trying to attain some worldly wealth. I've died to the, to the pursuit of trying to live out this life in ease and comfort. I've died to myself that I might live for Christ. Friends, if you live for yourself, the, the, the life, you, you cannot know the life of Jesus and it cannot be manifested in you. But if you die to self, then the life of Jesus can be manifested in your mortal flesh. So recognize these equations. Live for self. Die in sin. Die to self. Life in Jesus. Jesus died for your redemption. But you must die to self to receive the gift of salvation. The Bible tells us that to be saved requires that you believe that that God raised Jesus from, that he died for your sins and God raised him from the dead, and for you to confess Jesus as Lord. To confess Jesus as Lord means that you are recognizing that you are no longer Lord and that he is. That, by definition, friends, is to die to self, that you might live and have life in Christ. Life is demonstrated through death in that, we, uh, that, that uh, we identify with Jesus in death. And then notice in verse 12, Paul talks about that we testify to Jesus in hope. Look at what he says. It's an interesting turn of phrase that it's a beautiful word of, uh, of love and grace. He says in verse 12, so, so this is just sort of the reality of his life. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I think verse 12 is Paul's purpose statement for his ministry. Dying to self so that others may live. Making known the glory of Christ and the hope of the gospel is well worth the suffering. Paul recognizes that he has and will have many difficulties. But for the blessing of the church and the salvation of the lost, it is well worth the cost. I think that this point will be lost on many. Because I'm, I'm afraid that most of you are chasing after temporary things. Depending on your age group, depends on what you're chasing after, but but the result of them are the same. Maybe if you're on the younger end of the scale, maybe you're really concerned with your your reputation, your influence on social media. How many people actually interacted with your last post? And friends, can I just tell you, that doesn't mean a hill of beans. 
In the grand view of eternity, nobody cares. But some of you older folks, you're going, mm-hmm, that's because you're not on TikTok and you don't even know what it is. But you're chasing after the next promotion, the next uh, um, raise. And can I tell you, in the grand view of eternity, it doesn't mean a hill of beans. In the grand scheme of eternity, it doesn't care and, and, and it doesn't matter. There's coming a day when nobody will remember what you did or even your name. Many of you are chasing after things that have temporary value, but are like, like a fleeting mist. They are here now and will gone, be gone tomorrow. And you, will have, you are giving your entire life to pursuing them. Now, what Paul says in this last verse that we read, verse 12, is a direct refutation to the pursuit of worldly pleasure. He's saying, Death is in our life. So he says, he says in verse 12, so death is at work in us. That's not a negative statement. In fact, I think he's saying that with great joy. Death is at work in us. We're dying to the things of this world because of the surpassing value that you, dear church, are having life being born in you. What is he talking about? He's dying to the things of this world that he might proclaim the life that is found only in Jesus. Friends, or specifically brothers and sisters in Christ, this must be your life calling. In your home, let death reign in you that life may reign in your children and your spouse. In our church, let death reign in you that the gospel hope of life might reign in this church. In your labor, wherever you go Monday morning to labor, may death be at work in you, that life may be at work in your co-laborers. In our community, we're seeing the sinews the connective tissue of our culture being ripped asunder. I was in a meeting recently with a, with a, with a school administrator and I made that statement. I said, I think we're seeing the, the tearing of our cultural fabric. And she said to me, oh no, it's already ripped. Brothers and sisters, in our community, would death be at work in you? That life would be at work in our community. Just thinking globally in our world, would death be at work in you, that life would be at work in our world? Joyfully die to the comforts and pleasantries of this world that in the frailty of jars of clay you might declare the glory and life found only in Jesus. We live in a culture that's fascinated by celebrity. And as a result, we tend to, to look toward those who are well-known or who have great following as important or as gifted or somehow more significant 
than regular folk. It's been years ago, but when my daughter was a seven-year-old little girl, we were getting ready one Sunday morning, and while we were preparing for church, we had the television on, and there was a church service of a a much larger church, and a a well-known pastor, he was preaching, and she was looking at that, and think, I guess she was thinking about what we were about to do here. And she, she gave me this word of preaching advice that's become sort of a family joke in our family. She said, Dad, what I think you ought to do is write down everything that he says. And then when you preach later this morning, just say everything that he said. Well, to be totally honest, I was a little offended. I was a little hurt. I, I, I picked up that my daughter was, was recognizing that maybe there was something better in her opinion, greater in her opinion that he was doing than what she had seen me do many times before and what she knew I was about to do that that Sunday morning here at the church. I asked her, I said, well, sweetheart, what makes the difference between what he's doing and what what I do? And she said, oh, dad, well, he's a pro. (laughs) Now, our family has laughed about that and And it very well may be that that was a correct assessment of the difference between him and me. There is no doubt that to a seven-year-old and even to many adults, the comparison between the preacher on TV and me seemed to be disproportionate. He preached to thousands. I preached to hundreds. He has more academic letters behind his name than I'll ever have. He's written books. I can't get a paragraph spelled properly. He's well known, sought after to speak at conferences. Nobody's burning my phone up to invite me to preach. He's known by thousands. I've known, I am known by few. Friends, listen to me carefully. Celebrity is honored by the world, but jars of clay are treasured by Jesus. So you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm a regular folk too. Praise God for that. Because God uses jars of clay. Sometimes even even as we are trying to speak spiritually, sometimes we'll look at someone who has an influence, a clear giftedness, an ability to do great things, and we'll say, I've, I've said this, you may have said this, oh, if they would just get saved, how God could use them for the glory of His name. Friends, that's the wrong thing to say. God uses jars of clay. Instruments that on their own, no one ever would say, well, there's something God could use. Jars of clay, common, disposable, regular. And in those jars of clay, those containers of commonness, God's glory and power is displayed. 
preacher is nothing more than a conduit. You are nothing more than a container. The power and the glory is the Lord's alone. Jars of clay in weakness and humility display the surpassing power of the glory of God. You may never be a celebrity. You may never be an influencer. Praise God for that. But right now, you are a jar of clay. And right now, you can display the glory of God. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.